Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Hey, how you doing? I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're okay wherever you are. I have Elisa Washuda on the program today. She is my guest. She is the author of an essay collection called White Magic, available now from Tin House. I had a great time talking with Elisa Washuda. Her essay collection, it, it reads like a memoir. It reads like a unified thing. It's very formally inventive. It feels like deeply personal in a way that exceeds uh, most collections of personal essays, if that's a way to put it. I talk about this with Alyssa in conversation. It's a book that could only have been written by her. And I mean that uh, as a compliment. And if I, you know, not to be cute about it, but there's something kind of magical about the way she pulls it off. She does a lot of things that you're not supposed to be able to do, it feels like. And yet she does them and it works. And uh, it's also a harrowing story in the aggregate uh, and a story of triumph in a way. So much to come. Great conversation with Alyssa Washuda. Again, her essay collection is called White Magic. Today's episode is brought to you by McSweeney's, publisher of the novel Ivory Shoals by John Brandon, best-selling author of Citrus County and Arkansas. Ivory Shoals is in the vein of Mark Twain and Cormac McCarthy, a distinctly American novel, an epic that tells the story of a 12-year-old boy named Gussie Dwyer who sets out across the uh, peninsula, the Florida Peninsula, in post-Civil War era, in search of his father, a man who has no idea that his son even exists. Ivory Shoals is rich in deadpan humor, and it uncovers deep truths about family and self-determination. It's an odyssey across land, and it's an odyssey, uh, you know, about a boy making his way out of childhood. Ivory Shoals by John Brandon. It's unforgettable. Available now from McSweeney's. So my guest once again is Alyssa Washuda. She's a nonfiction writer 
and a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe. Her other books include My Body is a Book of Rules and another called Starvation Mode. She is also co-editor of the anthology Shapes of Native Nonfiction, Collective Essays by Contemporary Writers. She co-edited that with Teresa Warburton. Alyssa is an assistant professor of creative writing at The Ohio State University, and I really enjoyed meeting her and talking with her, and we're going to get to that right now. So here she is, folks. This is Alyssa Washuda, and her new essay collection, One More Time, is called White Magic. I mean, my first book does not feel like it's as much my book as White Magic does, Um, not by a long shot, even though I feel like that my body as a book of rules was so much more personal in a lot of ways um, in the details, I guess. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the structure was exactly what I wanted with no really significant concerns about will this sell or not. Um, and even more so than that, I really put a lot of work into getting the voice to sound like me um, rather than, trying to make it sound like a a voice of a memoir. That was a lot of work. It required a lot of stripping down my prose. Okay, I was going to ask specifically, like, what do you do to sound more like yourself? (laughs) Well, I tweet. (laughs) Um, You know, I kind of realized this a couple years ago that, you know, I don't write every day. I don't, just because of the demands of my job and like what writing requires of me. I just don't write every day or even every week sometimes. Um, But I do tweet just about every day. And I realized that I was putting a lot of work into voice in those little, what is it like 140 characters or more now? I don't remember, but you know, I was trying to sound exactly like myself consistently and I think that was a really good exercise in distilling like the essence of how I sound, um, trying to be myself online, trying to be myself in person, trying to be myself on the page. I wanted to be myself everywhere because I was so sick of persona in my writing. Right. No, that, that totally speaks to me. And it sounds like the most mentally healthy approach to Twitter I've ever heard. You know? like, <laughs> uh, it's like a, you're cutting against like the impulse to curate or maybe not, I guess it's a form of curation to a degree, but like it's a curation that moves in the direction of authenticity, which I think is the better way. The thing that I immediately started to think as you said this, as somebody who's like a recovering tweeter is like, oh my God, like that's great if it works. I worry about what would happen if I tried to be myself on Twitter and I got like one fave, you know, like, like, oh, (laughs) well now, now, you know, now, you know, the the truth, you know, it's like, there's no hiding anymore. Like this is me. And, uh, I've got one fave apparently. It's definitely weird to have it be so closely in relationship with my writing because, I get kind of startled when I realize that people are reading my tweets. I mean, I know people are reading my tweets, but when people talk about it with me in person um, and tell me they follow me on Twitter or, you know, a a friend once told me the algorithm likes you and I got really self-conscious, I think because I was just, you know, kind of thinking about the tweets in with the same mindset I bring to my work. Um, which is that, you know, I put it out there and 
I'm really, really glad if people like it, but um, I'm also terrified of people reading it in a way. Yeah. I mean, do you find that the move towards authenticity improved your Twitter performance or like the receptivity of your followers? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does it work yeah. better that way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it, maybe not for everyone, but just the style of what I'm doing, you know, I'm I don't have a lot of energy to. I don't know, go on Twitter to make long threads a lot of the time about, um, I don't know, things that are important. <laughs> it's it's so much easier for me to write about things in a, a somewhat flippant way that is kind of interior um, without really trying to be universally appealing. Um, I've had this recent interest in bringing together screenshots from different uh movies about like financial stuff and i knew that i mean i figured nobody was going to like those tweets those were just for me and they delight me but a few people have really liked those tweets um i think it's 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 very similar to 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 writing books at this point for me that i just want to go where my curiosity lies and go with what I'm interested in because it's Twitter or it's the personal essay. I'm like, why would I do this if it didn't feel good in some way? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I think like, again, I'm thinking to myself, but can you put something out there that's pleasing to you like this financial stuff and maybe you don't get like a lot of people excited about it. Does it affect your feelings about it? Or are you able to disconnect? No. You're just like, I like it. Fuck yeah. off. Okay, good. Yeah. And then I think too, what you said about writing in the personal essay, you know, it, it is very much echoed by what I read in White Magic. Like it's one of those collections where um, it makes a lot of unexpected turns. You know, there are a lot of like braided essays, if I may describe it that way. And it, you really feel, you really feel as a reader, like, well, this is Alyssa's mind working. You know what I'm saying? It feels like yeah. real, like almost like real time. You know, it feels like you're in your brain and you're, uh, you know, I'm kind of following you as you go through your thought process, which I, I love that, you know, um, as a reader, it, it always, I mean, when it's done well, because, um, I don't know, it has that movement and that sense of surprise and there's something sort of, I, I like how you make what seem what can seem like disparate associations in your work that like the sum is greater than their parts. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, uh, that I love that sort of thing in, in writing. So kudos. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, I've always, you know, as long as I've been writing nonfiction, I've been fascinated by the idea of the essay being driven by the workings of the mind on the page. And that's the plot that you know the the movement through the realization process or the question and answer process that's the plot that's where the events are happening in the insight in the epiphanies or whatever um or you know the the feelings of being horrified by what i remember i don't know so i was really interested in taking that further and authentically 
representing the kind of like tracking of my curiosity and interests and the way that connections do happen in my brain. Um, just that I, I love, and I'm so fascinated by that, that feeling of sparking when I make a connection between two things. And I really wanted to not only show the reader how to, how that is for me, but let the reader experience it too. Yeah, no, it definitely was the case. And, you know, there's so much happening in this book. Like it's a difficult book for me to describe to people. Uh, it's a, it's a collection of essays, but it reads to me like a memoir in some ways, you know, there's a real unity and a sense of, um, like not, not like one for one chronological narrative, but it, you do move, feel like, I feel like I, I moved through time with you, um, mm -hmm. you know, with some deviations and back and forth. Uh, and then it's about a lot. A lot has happened for you and to you and mm -hmm. you're piece, you're, you're piecing it together. And I think like, you know, I, one of the impulses that you'll often, you know, or one of the pieces of encouragement or advice that you'll often read about or hear as a writer is, you know, focus your narrative, things of that nature. And in a book as personal as this, I appreciated how you didn't shy away from complexity. Like certainly you're working a set amount of threads. It's not infinite, obviously, but I don't know. It, it kind of felt true to life is what I'm saying. You know, the way that it honored the the kind of fractal nature of reality. And, you know, people don't, you know, people don't live their lives in really focused, unified, thematic manners. Like life, yeah. moves, life moves around and your book finds a way to reflect that um, without losing the reader. I, I imagine that was, that was the task at hand, you know, trying to pull that, that trick off. Yeah. Part of that came from teaching MFA students at Ohio State. Um, in workshop, there's, you know, kind of a, it's kind of a cliche at this point for um, the feedback to consist of something like, this essay is trying to do too much, or this should be two essays instead of one. Um, and it got me wondering, does the essay have infinite capacity for threads and for subjects? How much can I do? And, you know, is there a limit and where is the limit and what, what determines the limit in how many things can be happening at once? Because, yeah, exactly. It's like, there's so much happening in life. There's so many things that have been happening to me over the last few years that are not in the book at all, that could be an entirely different book. And ultimately, I think it's an intuitive process of, of figuring out what fits and what doesn't. But I do think that it's a really interesting challenge, a craft challenge as a writer to see, you know, to, to not look at something and automatically think it it's doing too much and just closing that door, but instead think, okay, what if I had to have all of these topics in, in a book? What if it had to be about heartbreak and colonization and magic and the internet and land? What if I had to have all those hap happening at once? How would I do it? Okay, let, and... me, let me interrupt you here because this was kind of like my next line of, of uh, commentary slash questioning. Just so we have listeners at home on board, many, many of whom haven't had a chance to read yet. 
let's give people like an idea of the scope and an idea of what this is about. You just touched on many of the things that this book is mm -hmm. about magic, colonization, uh, I would say Native American identity, I would say white mm -hmm. supremacy, relationships, land, real estate, <laughs> you know, which yeah. I, I think are connected. But I mean, like, you're very interested in buildings and homes, you know, I think the home yeah. shopping parts of it, you know, were fascinating. <laughs> and they're of a piece with maybe the, like the outdoor land um, concerns of the book. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? There's a connectivity, yeah. place matters. Yeah. Um, heartbreak, sobriety. Oh, yeah. Addiction. That's, yeah, big one. <laughs> how, how, yeah. PTSD, trauma, yeah. sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a lot. Anxiety. Um, video games. Video, ga video games, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, was, I, I found particularly harrowing this misdiagnosis of bipolar disorder that happened because yeah. I have like a, you know, you have, I've had bad experiences with medical stuff. And I know how fraught and uncertain in ways that you might not expect if nothing like that has ever happened to you, medic medicine can be. To be misdiagnosed and then heavily medicated for something as serious as bipolar, that, that, ter that sounds terrifying to me. Um, yeah. That, that, was, that was a hard part of the book for me. I was like, oh my God, like to be taking, you know, and to be taking, the, if you're genuinely bipolar, the drugs that you take for bipolar, they work and they're great and useful, but... If you're not bipolar and you're taking bipolar drugs, that's got to be a lot to handle for your system. It was terrible. I think I, I don't think that I have fully, I know I haven't fully reckoned with it. Like I, it, it is too much for me to really think about. Um, so I want it to be, you know, very present in my next book because yeah, from age, what, like 21 to 31, I was on antipsychotics, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, lithium. I was on all these really heavy duty drugs that had very strong side effects. Um, and they didn't work. I wasn't, you know, my moods were not good. I didn't feel, I didn't feel any better, but my doctors kept saying, you know, you have to stay on these because you could die. You could kill yourself, basically. And to, you know, I, I just had a hunch once I got sober, my moods were so much more stable all of a sudden, and I wasn't as depressed anymore. It's amazing. Um, it's amazing how that works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. And so I thought, you know, why don't I just try? I think I was on four meds, and I thought, why don't I just try going off the lithium? and see if that works. My doctor said, whatever. She was kind of checked out <laughs> by that point. Um, and, you know, I felt fine. And then I started seeing a new psychiatrist and he re-diagnosed me with PTSD and alcohol use disorder in remission and then helped me one by one get off all the meds. I think, you know, now I'm 36 and I have a lot of chronic health problems and I don't know, you know, did those come from 10 years on antipsychotics? I don't know. It's possible. Uh, those are questions I was not ready to answer in white magic, but um, it was important to me to, you know, I, for so long I knew that I wasn't bipolar 
And yet I had a book in the world, My Body is a Book of Rules, is about being bipolar. Um, it was very hard to talk about that book and, w- while knowing that, you know, that it wasn't true anymore. I needed to find a way to write about that, to get it, to to not just like tweet it out or say it offhand in an interview or in a Q&A. I needed to write about it to really explain that I was, you know, I was being honest. It was just wrong. <laughs> I was told something that was wrong. Got it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the, th- that's the part of it is that like there's something leveling about r- coming to grips with or being confronted with the fact that doctors are often wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some part of me that just wants to believe that if somebody's a doctor, they know what they're talking about uh, because they're a doctor. And then, uh, yeah. you know, boy, they make a mistake that's of consequence in your life to your health or to the health of someone you love and you're forever changed. You know, I, I certainly, mm-hmm. I can't go into a doctor's office without like my hackles up anymore because I'm just always wondering either what they're not telling me or what they don't know. Yeah. They just don't have time to think about it. My primary doctor told me that she has 4,000 patients and is only able to see each of us for about 10 minutes during an appointment. Um, So, yeah, I think I don't necessarily fault my doctors. You know, they I don't know what their jobs are like. I don't I don't have any idea how they're expected to keep up with, uh, you know, current knowledge in so many different areas of health. Uh, but we certainly are in a mess. No doubt. It's so disconcerting when you go in for a checkup and your doctor talks to you for like 10 minutes and it's like, okay, we're going to take your blood. Bye. And you're just like, yeah, did you get everything? <laughs> you know, like I'm, I only see you once a year. Like, let's make sure we do a, you know, like a real checkup, but they do, they have a lot on their plates and you know, it's a lot to, it's, it's too much for one person probably to know and to be on top of, especially when you have 4,000 people that, you know, you're supposed to be caring for. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, I want to talk to you about magic. You know, your book is called White Magic and... I was thinking before I was, uh, you know, before we came on the line, uh, because your book is also concerned, we forgot to mention this, with astrology, um, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. is tied to magic a bit. It's, uh, there's witchcraft, um, you know, and, uh, you know, some of the magic or um, you know, some of the magical aspects of uh, your native ancestry, like it's all sort of woven in there. 
And so what I was thinking uh, before we came on is I was like, oh my God, like did Alyssa like somehow find out my birthday? Has she done my charts? <laughs> are you coming to this conference? Do you know who I, are you? Are you seeing through me right now? Like what is going on? <laughs> Tell me who I am. <laughs> I, you know, I really mostly gave up astrology at, and all of that. I, I mean, I'm still interested in it. It's not like I, I don't know. I don't have any bad feelings about any of it, but I mean, there's a couple things. One thing is that astrologers were just predicting that 2020 would be so bad that I got really psyched out and I just couldn't read astrology blogs or whatever anymore. Um, they were just really, you know, making predictions that were, you know, of like global catastrophe. Um and so I, pro, pro, like, I mean, excuse me for interrupting, but this was prior to COVID like these. Oh, were... yeah. Damn. This okay. Been for years, as early as um, I think as early as 2017, I remember being in my Seattle apartment reading these things. And, you know, just because of the, the planetary transits that were ahead, there were major transits in, in 2020 and, and 2021. Um, so that was part of it. I just realized it was. Um, stoking my anxiety way too much. The The other thing was that I think everything I was trying to get to through casting spells and reading charts and reading my tarot cards, um, I was trying to tap into some kind of power that I, I had begun to know was in the universe. And I don't think it worked as well as actually writing this book did just paying attention to the synchronicities in my research and having the experience of like listening and receiving what I found that was really powerful in comparison to, you know, trying to make something happen by carving words into the side of my candles and, and, and all of that. Now that makes sense. It's like, it's kind of like the, if you do the hard work, the payoff is going to be like realer than if you're hoping for the quick fix. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, what I would ask you is, can you talk about some of the payoffs in the hard work? You mentioned the synchronicities, you know, the things that, that were delivered to you through the research. Is there mm -hmm. an example of something that you like kind of, I've, cause I've had this happen, you know, where you'll find synchronicities in research, uh, like between say something that captures your interest like mm -hmm. Twin Peaks is in your book a lot. I'll just mm -hmm. use it as an example, but suddenly you'll be reading about Twin Peaks or watching Twin Peaks and you'll realize that there's something about it that is directly connected to the other concerns of your work in ways that you never could have anticipated. And I think that's its own kind of magic, you know, those moments of yeah. like unexpected connection that are like realer than real. And you're like, oh, wow. And I've always... You know, I've always been thrilled by that when it happens. It doesn't happen quite a lot, uh, but it always kind of serves as a like a, a confirmation that I'm on the right track. Definitely, Twin Peaks was you know it was that was a big one for me. Um, a, I think a, a pretty specific example within that. Um, so in 2017, I went to see the movie Wind River in the theater um, about the. It's like a crime movie about Wind River Indian Reservation. Um, and within the span of a few days, I saw that and I um, 
was watching Firewalk with me, the Twin Peaks movie, and I believe in that movie, um, one of the women's bodies is found in Wind River. And then another thing was that there's this really iconic set of photographs of my uh, great great aunt um, with her canoe in a river. And I was doing research and, and revisiting those photos and saw that they were in Wind River. Um, different Wind River than the movie. Maybe the same Wind River as in Twin Peaks. Um, that was one thing that happened. Around the same time, another big one is that uh, I had already been writing about magic and, you know, magicians, stage magic, performance magic. Uh, and I was writing about my ex-boyfriend, Carl. Um, and I found, you know, when I was just Googling him uh, for no reason other than infatuation um, and, you know, that kind of research, <laughs> I, f I found that he had the same name as a magician from Ohio, same first and last name. Uh, and that, I mean, that was weird. There were yeah. just lots of things like that. Yeah, like there's a lot of, I mean, again, I got. I guess I could use this word for lack of a better one, but there are a lot of magical seeming things that happen to you in your life uh, in the book, you know, as described in the book. Like I was, uh, I was particularly uh, interested in the doppelganger thing. Oh, yeah. Because this has happened to me one time. And, oh, yeah? Yeah, but I was so young that I... I now mistrust it. I'm like, am I just telling myself that this happened? Like, is this one of these memories that actually is kind of a fiction that I've told myself so many times that it feels real? Do you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I remember playing basketball as a kid at the YMCA in Milwaukee. And the, there was a kid on the other team that I was guarding or who was guarding me who looked exactly like me. To, wow. the, to the point where it freaked me out. I was like, oh my God, that's me. You know? Uh, and you know, in your book, it's a bit different. You're kind of like seeing, what is it? Your older self on yeah. the bus, you know, yeah. which is kind of spooky and Lynchian, uh, if mm -hmm. I may, like it feel, it felt strange. And I also feel like, you know, as somebody who I think at that section of the book, you were really struggling with sobriety or mm -hmm. were newly sober. Forgive me for not remembering exact details, but it had something to do with that, you know, and the, and the woman that you saw who seemed like a future version of yourself was maybe somebody who had not gotten well. Is that correct? I think so. That happened when I was really, I mean, I was hungover when that happened okay. and it was the afternoon, you know, I was, I was drinking a ton at that point and I didn't, I don't think I had any thoughts about getting sober. It didn't seem like a, it was a possibility at all. Uh, yeah. And I saw her and she was on the bus uh, and she was wearing a, you know, like a surgical mask. Um, and I thought like, is she sick? Like what's, a, you know, and she looked just like me, but older had, you know, glasses like my glasses. She was uh, like, she was like pandemic Alyssa, like, you know, kind of telling yeah. you about your future. <laughs> yeah. And then I saw myself in the window last year, uh, like getting out of my car and, you know, had a wool cape on just like she did and had my, you know, medical mask on. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm the future now. Wow. I, I don't know what that was supposed to be foretelling or whatever, but Yeah. Okay, because like the whole, I mean, part of the struggle that you, I think, in, encounter in your life and in, on, on the page is like how much credence, you know, to put into this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I think 
I'm I'm like I'm open to it personally. I think you are too. Like I think we have like I think most people want to have some belief in the possibility of magic or more than meets mm-hmm. the eye in the universe. Um, you know, there are some like strict materialists, but I don't understand that that mindset. You know, it feels like mm-hmm. a little bit of hubris to me. You know, uh, like yeah, there's a, if there's if there's one thing I know, it's that we don't know much. You know, so hey, mm-hmm. like a lot is possible, and at the same time. I think that there's an emotional component to these sorts of tendencies and beliefs and responses to situations that you can't deny. Like Mm -hmm. you might be at a place in your life where you're struggling with X, Y, and Z and boy, it sure would be nice if there was a sign, you know, Oh my God, Mm -hmm. that rainbow, (laughs) you know, like suddenly it's imbued with meanings that I really needed to have right now. And so you start to wrestle with yourself over, meaning, you know, like Mm -hmm. how much of this is a projection of my own and how much of this is, you know, potentially patterns in nature and in the universe that I might not necessarily have a full grasp of that are, but that are trying to truly communicate something. Uh, Do you see where I'm I'm going? Like, oh yeah. I mean, I'm very susceptible to just making that stuff up. I know, like for myself, seeing signs where I want to see them. I definitely do that. But there were some things that are, you know, feel kind of unmistakable. Like, I mean, one thing was that I, uh, in early sobriety, I was really struggling. Everything felt so much harder. Um, Just getting through the day felt so hard. And I was frying tofu. Um, I think I wrote about this in the book. I was frying tofu and it was... The oil was getting all over my stove and me and my clothes and was like stinging me. And I was so frustrated. And I thought like, God, if I only had a fry daddy, my (laughs) life would be so much easier. I could just make my tofu, you know, it would be like a commercial. Um, And then later that day, I was walking into my building at work and saw that where the free books usually were, there were no books. There was just a brand new fry daddy in its box. <laughs> I mean, that feels like a sign. Right. That feels like the universe speaking right back. I just got the chills when you said that. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm ready. Like, I, Yeah, I think just some things, you know, they they go beyond explanation. Like, I don't know how you possibly... I, or, you know what? I think... Well, I, I guess like one place that I've gone with it in, in my attempts to try to understand uh, is that I, there, there seems to be something to this idea that consciousness is something we all share. And it's maybe like a force, a universal force, not entirely dissimilar to gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what I'm getting at? Like it's not contained between your ears. Like it's, Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess like maybe what I, where I'm going is like with like clairvoyance or signals, you know, some of us have antenna uh, that mm-hmm. are sharper and more attuned than others. You know, I do believe I've had conversations with psychics where they've known shit that they could not possibly have picked mm-hmm. up. You know, this was pre-internet too. So they didn't mm-hmm. Google me. Like they didn't listen to my show. You know, like yeah. they, they could not have known, you know, like there's just no possible way. So I, I just, I have to believe there's at least something to it. And there are signals that they're picking up. That's the only way that I could describe it. And where are those signals? And maybe it wasn't necessarily the case of like the universe hearing you and then providing you with exactly what you <laughs> wanted, but more a case of you like, like a, like 
pre-seeing it. What's the word I'm like, you know, seeing it like you, you, yeah. uh, you knew it was coming somehow. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Um, I think through the writing process, I hoped to kind of maybe settle somewhere on some of these questions. Uh, but I think I became less and less interested in knowing anything for sure and just interested in tackling the project of like knowing myself. Uh, I, you know, the more, the more I got into the, the writing, the more I realized I had overestimated how well I understood myself. And that was really where the focus needed to go first. Like I wasn't going to understand, um, I don't know how divinity works without <laughs> knowing how Elizabeth Shuda works. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Like, I think when you write something personal and you sort of like, you know, you're like checking under the hood, you know, like what's going on in here. It's a humbling experience. It's a, it's like a, a big lesson in being wrong. I feel like, or, or just like you talk about getting to the, or, or not getting to a place of uh, like total self-knowledge. In my experience, it's more like getting to a place where you're like, comfortable in the wrongness you're like okay i can't know you know like mm -hmm. this is always going to be inexact and you have to sort of you know you have to sort of make peace with it you do the best you can you you make your explorations but i think the interesting parts maybe are the unresolved parts you know like mm -hmm. what's interesting about a cul-de-sac at a certain point you know the the places mm -hmm. where things open up and you're kind of you gotta gotta live with the mystery you know there's room to go in in spots like that and uh i think your book does a nice job of touching on a lot of them you know and just being honest with honest with the not knowing where that is where things wound up you know yeah i think that partway through the writing process i realized um that was maybe the biggest project that the book needed to undertake is like really reckon with my need to know everything for sure. My desire to know the future, my desire to know everything about, you know, what my partner was thinking and doing. And, um, you know, the, the obsession I had with permanence and with knowing everything, I realized that was the problem. Um, I mean, it wasn't the whole problem. Like the men were a problem too. Like they weren't, <laughs> they weren't great. Uh, but you know, but for me, that was the, the thing that I needed to look at in myself more was, you know, the desire to know where I was going to live forever. The rest of my life, was I going to have my forever house in Seattle? Was I going to have my forever husband? Was I, you know, when was this going to happen? Um, and I, that really started to come out when I was, looking at the landscape of Seattle um, and thinking about the ways settler colonialism resulted in the filling of the tide flats, the regrading of the hills, the straightening of rivers, um, so much effort to, um, not all of those things, not, not the regrading so much, but the, those other things were efforts to, make a permanent landscape that wouldn't flood where people could build houses, settlers could build houses. Um, I was doing all that research at a time when I desperately wanted to remain in Seattle and I wanted a house and I wanted Carl to be with me forever. 
and I just wanted to, you know, reserve my spot in my dream life, you know. Right, uh, right, right. But it was obvious to me that it was big. It was all of that was um, something I could not count on at all. Uh, I began to see that I was probably going to have to move out of Seattle. And I did because it was just becoming a different place than the place that had been when I arrived and could afford to live there. Sure. And I, you know, I, I'm thinking now of like Kurt Cobain and, you know, that whole aspect of Seattle lore, and that was part of the attraction of the city to you. It's also your ancestral homeland. Like that region is where, Mm -hmm. um, your uh, tribe is from. Is that right? Like, can you describe a little bit about like your, your roots? Yeah. So, um, I'm a member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe and, our land is in southwestern Washington, uh, closer to Portland, but regionally, it's all um, Coast Salish territory. So there's a lot of relationships and commonalities between peoples and cultures. Um, there's lots and lots of tribes um, on the Northwest Coast, and of course, there's you know significant differences, but there's some you know shared. Um, practices that have to do with the the environment, you know, um, materials that we make baskets out of or um, berries that we eat, um, roots that we um, consider food and uh, practices of land management um, and also songs and art. There's, there's a lot that's in common. So although I was somewhat far, you know, not, not exactly close to where my tribe is, is located. Um, I was close enough that I was, you know, constantly among people who were, um, you know, neighbors. Got it. And okay. I want to talk about, this feels like a nice, we'll get back to Kurt Cobain. Um, if there's something to, to, you know, if there's a place to go there, but I, I feel like I, I want to hear you talk about, uh, identity a bit more because you know you were not raised unless i'm mistaken on uh, a reservation you were raised in jersey mm-hmm. and so you had it like you know like just a cultural education of sort of navigating the tension between your native identity and the milieu that you grew up in um in jersey you know living as a native person in the united states of america in 2021 like comes with its set of its set of challenges and yeah. what has happened on this land and in this country is something that we still haven't even come close to reckoning with. Um, you know, I think I just, I live in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm sitting here on, uh, on native land right now. I've done in recent years for the first time, uh, to my discredit, you know, reading about like the history of this place, you know, mm-hmm. you there's only so many hours in the day, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be too hard on myself, but it's one of those things I meant to do. And then I finally did it. I'm like, well, what the hell, what, what happened here? You know, mm-hmm. like who are the Tongva people, you know, like what, how did the missions get set up? Like, Oh, it's like, it's a terrible history. And this is just mm-hmm. one sub history in a uh, tapestry of terrible histories that unfolded across this country. And, uh, I don't know, you, you're an avatar for you know, as a writer, you know, as somebody who's, who's writing and speaking and working in the culture, you know, 
your your legacy feels like it speaks to all that you know all the all the bad stuff that kind of echoes through the generations and um i don't know your book moved me at that level and i guess i'd like to just hear you talk a bit more about the challenges in like sorting out a sense of identity um that's a really long-winded question but <laughs> it's a yeah. lot to unpack yeah, so the the Kalitz tribe is in a somewhat unique position. I mean, all tribes are in unique positions. You know, the history of the um, California tribes is so different from, I mean, really any peoples anywhere else. Um, that's true along the Columbia River um, in in Washington as well. So I'm I'm a member of the Kalitz Indian tribe. That's where I'm enrolled. Um, culturally, I'm also cascade so the there's no cascade tribe now as a uh you know governing entity uh there's no longer a nation because of colonization because of deliberate actions to break up the cascades um which i i've written about you know over and over again my ancestor um thomas who was hanged by the government for treason along with other leaders um in, you know, a deliberate act, I, I believe, meant to break up the tribe, um, which was what they were doing a lot of in that area at that time in the 1850s. Um, so anyway, I digress, but I'm I'm Cascade. Um, Cascade descendants are enrolled in, you know, a bunch of different tribes. The history there is long and complicated. Um, but I am also I also have Kalitz lineage as well, and that's where I'm enrolled. Well, may, um, may I ask you what does it mean to be enrolled? Like obviously it means you're an official. Like you've 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 uh, formally recognized your membership in the tribe. But like what does that entail? Oh yeah, so it's it's basically a form of citizenship in a nation. Um, tribes are by the U.S. government called domestic dependent nations, and there's. Uh, you know, part of why it's, you know, there's so many, um, these histories are so complicated in part is because so much of understanding these histories relies on understanding federal government stuff, um, which I spent several years of my life trying to do. Um, but anyway, there are 500 plus tribes that are recognized by the federal government as being nations. Um, there are other tribes that the government will not recognize for various reasons. My tribe was one of those for a while, um, but has now been federally recognized for, for a while. Um, so the tribes being nations get to define their membership, their citizenry, just, you know, just as any other nation does. So being a tribe means being um, uh, a citizen of the nation, but it, it becomes more complex because of the federal government's interference with tribal nationhood and tribal sovereignty. There, you know, people can't be naturalized into tribes, um, tribal nations. There has to be some kind of, um, you know, biological descent uh and, and and may i interrupt like you are uh are both of your parents uh native or no just my mother just your mother okay okay forgive me for misremembering but um when you were growing up 
how much of um, your ancestry, like you had a, a pretty decent education. I know mm -hmm. you were describing pictures in your house that were always kind of there and those kinds of memories and stories were passed down to you. Um, but can you talk a bit like your, your book touches on your childhood a bit, but you know, there were questions I had as I was reading, like what it must have been like to grow up like native in New Jersey and to have this sense of self and ancestry uh, on the other side of the country. You had some experience visiting and, you know, relatives growing up. And I think I'm remembering like the berry picking, you know, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, these sort of standout memories that, you know, you, you kind of, we all have these, you know, you sort of tether yourself to as you're forming a sense of who you are and where you come from. But like, I, I guess what I'm, I find myself curious about is like Jersey, you know, like, <laughs> like what was it like for you, uh, you know, navigating the tension between like maybe the, you know, your native self and your Jersey self. Yeah, I think, you know, so yeah, I, in Jersey, I didn't have a lot of access to, I mean, obviously the land, which is extremely important in my sense of myself as a Cowlitz person. Um, we have strong relationships with land as tribal members. Um, that's, you know, it's part of the history of um, colonization. I mean, it's the foundation of the history of colonization here is, is land theft. Um, but there's a, a lot more in, in relationship with the land and, you know, our cosmologies. So being separated from the land, I think was a really significant, um, you know, kind of just point of stalling and understanding who I was, uh, as a Cowlitz person, as, as a kid. But, um, I think the years that I spent in Washington, um, living there for 10 years around other native people all the time, I worked for uh, the Department of American Indian Studies at the University of Washington. And there would be days that I would only talk to Native people. And I started to really understand the ways in which, you know, I, I did have a Native upbringing. You know, my mother's Native. And um, it's, it's sort of expressed and, and passed to me in ways that are somewhat indescribable, I think. Um, and especially because in Jersey, there's so much um, emphasis on Native peoples as, you know, kind of um, mythical, historic beings. Um, there's so much intertwining of, you know, ghost stories and, um, and legends with, you know, the idea of indigeneity. Um, and so... I think, you know, that, that sort of like gentle process of, of inheritance of, you know, of, of my indigeneity from my mother, um, I, I wasn't able to fully understand that in the face of being told by the settlers around me, you know, that I wasn't native enough or that I didn't fit the cultural representations that they were accustomed to. Um, that was just louder and it tapped into my anxiety instead of, you know, in, in contrast to the education that, that, you know, built my sense of who I, who I am. Got it. And, and the move to Washington, like, uh, 
clearly tied to a, an attempt at self-knowledge. You know, you wanted to have an adventure. I think there were some cultural pulls mm-hmm. as well. You had like a, a grunge fan, mm-hmm. as I recall. Like yeah. The, I think that like, you know, it's like that, that youthful, um, like that youthful tendency to be drawn, or at least for some of us to be drawn to stories of like these beautiful art stars who supernova you know like yeah uh you know you kind of went out there with a bit of that art dream as well it was a combination mm-hmm. like that was my read on it oh for sure i i went to um undergrad at university of maryland so pretty close to where i grew up just a few hours away um culturally a lot of similarities there um although nowhere's really that similar to jersey i think uh but I for grad school, I went to grad school right after I finished my bachelor's and I had a couple of options. One option was to stay in the DC area. One option was to go to Seattle to University of Washington and that's what I wanted to do because uh, you know, I had had that, you know, real real obsession with Nirvana as like a preteen or early teenager. Um and I think some of that lingered even as I, you know, I grew out of a lot of it, but still had that um, that affection for the imaginary Seattle that I kept holding in my heart, you know. Um, but I had family in Seattle and in Western Washington and Oregon. Um, so I had been out to Seattle quite a few times and loved it. I always loved it. So I just wanted to try it. And, and I was ready at that point to be more closely connected with Cowlitz governance. Um, I mean, certainly I didn't want to like put myself on tribal council, but, but, you know, I was ready to show up and understand just the ins and outs of, of tribal politics and, you know, learn from my aunties at tribal meetings. I really wanted to do that. Um, I had spent some time working in the federal government in uh, tribal affairs when I was an undergrad and, I was just ready to, to see the tribal side of all of that. I got it. Yeah. No, I think it's like, I, I feel like it's a, um, it's always like a worthy exercise to get to know your family. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been interviewing like aunts and uncles of mine, like for like a, like just like a family audio project because oh, cool. people are getting up in age and I'm, I'm, every time I do it, I'm grateful. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I did that and that I have this because you know, it, it, it goes, you can lose it and then you can't get it back. And it really gives, you know, it's given me like an unexpectedly deep, uh, or deeper sense of myself, you know, Mm -hmm. to kind of know family lore, family, like even little family traditions. Uh, maybe it's my advancing age. Like these things mean more to me maybe than they used to, (laughs) you know, but, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a understandable impulse and, uh, you know, the time that you spent in Seattle, I guess it, it coincided with your uh, crisis with substance, um, but that wasn't, it wasn't really the beginning of it. Like the beginnings of this were in your childhood. Um, I think it was, well, yeah, actually, <laughs> I keep having trouble locating the beginning point. Um, uh, you know, my memory does that. It's like a bunch of eels. Uh yeah, I, I started drinking NyQuil uh, recreationally when I was, I think, about 14, 13. I didn't really, you know, I, that stopped. 
after before too long. Um, it never became a problem, <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, I thought it was Robitussin that we're supposed to. I did Robo once and I just oh. I just got like diarrhea. It was awful. Like it I, tastes so bad I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree to kind of like the NyQuil and you can mix it with Gatorade. Um, but yeah, and I got drunk once in, in high school, uh, you know, from vodka someone brought in. But I think, I mean, the problems really began when I was in college and I – it was some time after I was raped in college, I began to have the PTSD show up. Now I know it was PTSD. Um, and I didn't know how to handle those feelings. And I remember I was a fencer back then. And I remember texting with my, um, my team captain and telling him that I was just really struggling and, you know, emotionally, in a bad spot and he said well get drunk and so i did and it was you know it was great <laughs> thanks friend um, for the good yeah. advice yeah um and i don't know you know if if i'm remembering that totally correctly as the beginning point because i've tried so hard to locate that sort of mythic beginning point of this whole story of my life or a part of my life but yeah, it definitely got really bad really fast in college. Got it. Yeah, and I uh I guess like thinking about PTSD uh it might be worth hearing you talk about like how that manifests because I think there are a lot of people who are traumatized and who might be suffering from PTSD who have no idea I, I think this is a misunderstood or, or it's an under understood thing uh, in in our medical experience or our human experience. You know, like how did it manifest for you? Like, were you having these experiences and symptoms for a long time before you were able to diagnose? Yeah, yeah, they'd been happening for for a long time, um, and originally they were so acute that they were identified as bipolar mixed episodes. Um, I, you know, I've actually been doing really well for quite a while, so it feels a little distant. Um, but there's just this sort of like intense panic, which I didn't, I didn't realize what a panic attack was because all I really knew was the sort of, common usage. Um, I, I never really thought about what a panic attack was, but I mean, panic is so deep and visceral. Um, I would just have these recurring feelings that I was not okay and I was not going to be okay and I was not safe and something bad was going to happen. Um, just this inexplicable sense of dread. Um, that was, you know, that was at its most acute. It, it felt um, extreme and it would be pretty brief. That was primarily how the psychiatrist initially noticed that I had probably been misdiagnosed because the episodes didn't last that long. Um, not as long as a mixed episode, which would be over, I don't know, days. I don't remember. Um, but these were just, you know, like hours long. And I think 
where it really um the the eventual manifestation that kind of settled in and stuck with me for a long time was somewhat like that but a, like with the volume turned down just a little bit um a, a frequent sense of suspicion of of other people and a sense that I wasn't safe um a sense that I was being lied to like you know pretty substantial paranoia um and I one thing that I do still have uh is a very strong startle response um you know it's it's super easy to to just you know um just I mean even in my house where you know I've been here alone with my partner and our cat for you know more than a year now um and I know nobody else is in the house but still if he comes around the corner in the kitchen like you know he has he knows that he needs to do it really carefully because I might like choke (laughs) (laughs) I, I get so startled um you know and that I see as um, I believe that's a sign of hypervigilance. So just the body and the mind constantly being on alert. Um, this is, you know, I, I have really bad insomnia and I think part of it is hypervigilance um, or at least the sort of ghost of hypervigilance. Um, as like, like I said, I'm getting better, but my mind has gotten set in its patterns. Um you know, I, I for a long time I couldn't sleep in a room when where anyone else was there because I'd been traumatized at night and that stuck with me. Well, and I should interject like this was one of the most haunting parts of your book was this Henry is that that was his name right or the mm-hmm. name in the book? Um, mm-hmm. You were asleep. He was a partner, a boyfriend of yours. You were asleep in bed. I guess you were snoring, mm-hmm. and this guy just like reaches over and plugs your nose mm-hmm. in your sleep and like almost like chokes you out or, you know, it's not a, this is an unkind thing to do and, and not at all a yeah. pleasant way to wake up. Yeah. He, he put his hand over my mouth and right. he held my nose shut and woke me up and was just really, um, you know, there was nothing light or like, you know, nothing silly or light about it. It was terrifying. His affect was terrifying in that moment. Um, God. Uh, yeah, and he you know, it was it was in context of a lot of other things. Like he that was not the only thing he did to me. Um there was a long history of of really terrible mistreatment of me, of my cat. Yeah. yeah. He was like a menacing. He was one of the worst characters in the book, you know. There cuz like yeah. there was something really calm <laughs> about your yeah. portrayal of him. This was not a guy. I'm sure he had fits of uh, anger that, you know, were demonstrative, but like, it's, it's that sort of like cold, cool, psycho kind of behavior that is sometimes even creepier. And, you know, I have to say, uh, in my reading lately, I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it's just like these stories are just, you know, this is a moment or I'm just, you know, I happen to be finding them at this moment, but a recurring theme over and over again, not only in literature, but in life, it's just like male behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really upsets me. It's mm-hmm. upsetting to read about. And, you know, as a guy, like, I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with us? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and also like, you know, how are we failing our sons? You know, like why? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a, it's a big question 
that we have to untangle is why this is such a, an epidemic, you know, of, uh, of just abusive male behavior and dudes with rage problems, you know, mm -hmm. and often white dudes with rage problems, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of it, I guess, is just personal failing, you know, I don't want to overanalyze it or like armchair shrink it, but like, I can't help but think of people's childhoods. Like you don't just turn out mm -hmm. this way unless something has gone sideways in your own existence. And yeah. it's too much of an epidemic for there not to be common threads, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of the ways in which we're raising boys, but also like communicating cultural values to our kids uh, around things like sex and gender, success and failure, mm -hmm. power, you know. And consequences. Right. And that's, I, you know, I, I think that the Henry, Henry character is... I don't know what happened to him. Um, he, I do see him as monstrous. I mean, I saw him again. If I wrote about it in the book. I saw him again um, some years after we broke up. And and I remembered all of it, you know, it, just how terrible it had been and how terrible he had been. Um, he didn't have displays of temper. It was just that calm cruelty uh, and, you know, a lot of, like, actual gaslighting uh in making me really doubt my experience of reality the other men in the book you know i think i'm i'm really able to have empathy for them even when they were bad to me or when they were just not great to me um to varying degrees it's easier to see you know their their struggles and their, you know, good qualities and their, like, I, I'm able to understand a little better with, with a lot of these guys, the ways that they use, um, you know, wounding of others as a protective mechanism. Um, I think what, you know, what continues to disturb me is the fact that I know I'm not supposed to talk about it. Like, I know they'll be so upset if they, I mean, they know, you know, some of them I'm sure know. And it, the, the, um, the expectation that they can just treat people however they want and, you know, not have that behavior commented on. I mean, that's, that's just absurd to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like just this consequence free. Uh, expectation you know you just behave horribly with impunity and that's the rule mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to believe too you know because I was I'm kind of like there's a part of me that's kind of relieved to hear you talk about understanding other guys you know that you've dated or have known who have failed in ways but there's more nuance to your understanding of them um, I think sometimes in our culture and it's totally understandable at a human level, you know, something horrible happens to you at the hands of a man. I could easily see how you could mistrust men <laughs> and mm -hmm. how you could have a tendency to view men through a lens, like men who maybe not don't meet the same qualifications of bad behavior, um, mm -hmm. like less willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like more, yeah. more willing to believe the worst of somebody. Um, and I struggle with that, you know, because I think like you got to navigate the tension between uh, believing the worst when it's merited, you know, and when mm -hmm. it's true, 
but also we, you know, avoiding a situation where, um, you know, the mistrust is not as deeply earned or something. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because it can, it can create an environment where like what I often worry about is, uh, vengeance, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, there is a certain justice to telling the truth and having your control of your narrative. So please know that I'm not suggesting that you 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 shouldn't have written this or that these stories shouldn't be shared. Um, that's not the kind of vengeance I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, you know, a sense of justice that's animated by just like lust for revenge, mm-hmm. uh, which on a human level is understandable. I think where I fall as a concerned human, when I'm thinking like more soberly is like, okay, but like, what's the long-term play? If vengeance is the only objective, then what's the reaction to that vengeance if the vengeance is achieved? And how does that perpetuate mm-hmm. cycles? And like, how do we actually get, like truly get as a species to a place of deeper understanding and better behavior? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, d- difficult mm-hmm. questions, but like it, I'm, I'm always reminded of them when I read about stories like some of the ones you told in your book. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, the, the Kevin character in the book um, not his real name. I think like he's an example of someone. I still talk to him occasionally. We both did things wrong in that re- relationship. And he was like, um, he was your drinking buddy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's not a bad person. And we, um, you know, we made amends to one another and he worked on, um, you know, he, he learned something from that breakup. Like he, and he, tried to be a more thoughtful person. Um, and, you know, I mean, like all of that is his, his, you know, personal stuff that I won't get into, but um, I, I think that that's an example of, um, you know, a relationship, uh, like a failed relationship that doesn't need to be on the page um, in the same way as the others, because it was, you know, that, the conflicts were resolved and it didn't end up with us getting back together. Like we weren't right for each other, but we resolved those conflicts in life. Um, and I don't have anything I need to really write about them, you know, to get the anguish out or work through questions. Like that's, you know, that's done. That's, it's fine. Um, you know, some of these other guys, I mean, they, they refused to own up to, having done anything wrong and um you know there i wrote about the process of making amends to henry um which i was told to do by someone um who you know had a bad idea about what i should do but <laughs> you know i i had you know he had a chance to to apologize to me as well and he he didn't see that he'd done anything wrong to me at a certain point, you know, if they're not sorry and they haven't done any work to make any of it right and they don't want to, you know, do anything restorative, I mean, at a certain point, I just have to tell my story because it is my story of what happened to me. Um, and, I, you know, I spent all that time in those relationships taking care of their feelings and I'm you know, I'm done. Right. I don't want to anymore. Yeah. And you know, the, the truth 
of the way I portrayed them. Um, in some cases, I think there might be a little a little sense of vengeance in there, but but mostly, it it was really an attempt to be honest and to not to to really, you know. I've done so much self-implicating on the page. Like that was for years, the thing that I thought I was supposed to do in my writing, like show the ways I was wrong and the ways I was at fault. And I started to think, you know what? I'm, I'm always self-implicating. Like what about everybody else who's implicated in this? Like, don't I get to say anything about them? And I just tried it out and, um, and I liked the results. Uh, (laughs) You know, I thought it worked. Well, and I think, too, when you're in a relationship with somebody like Henry, just to use that example, who is kind of this, like, calm, cruel, the the calm cruelty uh, and the gaslighting, you know, somebody who works on you abusively in a psychological way Mm -hmm. messes with truth, you know? Yeah. And I think that's particularly offensive for a writer or, you know, th- I can totally understand wanting to rectify that on the page because mm-hmm. not only is it an injustice, but it's also, it's like gotta be like a form of like sanity restoration. Like, okay, like, let me put this in order. This is what fucking happened, whether you like it or not, you know, no matter how you, yeah. might, how, no matter how much you deny it, you did these things, you said these things, you behaved in these ways. And, um, I don't know, like kudos to you for putting it down. It was, you know, it it surprised me. I thought that I was, you know, from writing my first book and everything that, you know, came along with it and talking about that book and and everything over the years, I just, it, it really surprised me that I could find anything else in my memory that was really traumatic and unresolved. Um, but I, you know, I, I was writing my first book while Henry and I were together. I was, I think I was, I was finishing it, revising it, something like that. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, in some ways it seemed like the experience of the relationship slipped through the cracks of memory. But once I started, um, really getting on a roll with writing white magic um, that coincided with uh, the movie I Tanya coming out. And I just remember being in that movie alone and like something broke inside of me. It, I was just like, Oh my God, like Henry abused me, um, which I, you know, I, I had kind of thought that over the years, but um, I mean, I had people tell me that like he didn't from what I had said to them like that that was an abuse um I don't know I don't know what to say about that but um I think it really surprised me that I hadn't examined that and that I really hadn't um that I hadn't been able to that I hadn't wanted to look at any of that and you know the writing and revision process became very hard in in some ways like emotionally hard and um you know my ptsd was sort of activated again while i was revising um but you know i've been through a lot of therapy now and i'm just able to and and now i know what's wrong with me that i have ptsd so i'm able to recognize the symptoms and just 
you know, make decisions about the writing process accordingly. Decide, I decided at a certain point, I'm done. I'm not revising this anymore. I can't do it. Well, I hope it's okay for me to be asking questions like this. I don't mean for to, sure. Yeah, uh, I don't mean to make you like like you know hone in on it, but it's such a big part of your book, and uh, you know, kind of a like a necessary conversation and like necessary stories to tell. I think it's relatable to a lot of people, and uh, you know, will help bring relief. You know, I think it's always a relief when you read about um, shared suffering or yeah, you know, the unspoken. I want to ask you uh, before I let you go about epigraphs. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, because like, you know, among the many things that your book does that feel very idiosyncratic and very personal to you, you know, just uniquely you, uh, is you repeat epigraphs mm -hmm. at the beginning of sections of your book. It's also a uniquely structured book. Like this truly is one of the more unique books I've read in memory. And um, I just, I guess I just want to hear you talk about that creative decision to like have these epigraphs repeat as like a recurring motif or as like echoes in different contexts, like throughout the course of the book. Yeah. I just remember it occurring to me one day when people on Twitter were talking about epigraphs and how they hate epigraphs. And I just kind of thought like as a joke, what if I had the same epigraphs on all the essays? Um, and I don't know exactly, you know, what the, the, you know, intended effect of that was. Uh, I just kind of did it as a joke because I do love epigraphs. I mean, my first book has so many of them. I, I just find them delightful as a writer. I, I want to have, you know, they're like stickers or decorations or something. Um, and so once I got more serious about the idea of, keeping the epigraphs and decided to really, you know, force myself to justify it to myself, I started to see that it was, it was actually pretty interesting. Um, I mean, although I love epigraphs in my own work, I don't read them super closely in other people's work. Um, and I think that's fine. I mean, I, I feel like the epigraphs are for me. Um, they're not necessary for understanding well, I guess before White Magic, they weren't necessary for understanding a lot of the work that I attached them to. But um, I just thought, well, actually, having them repeat could kind of like snag the reader's attention if they read epigraphs the way I do and, and are just kind of, you know, skimming them and not really absorbing them. When they come up again, they'll notice. And then when they come up again you know, the, they may really have to start thinking about what they mean. Um, but yeah, as the book manuscript became complete, I started to see that the epigraphs I had chosen did work really well in different ways for each of the essays that I attached them to. They're not, you know, not at the beginning, not at the very end, but I settled on them being... Um, at the beginning of all of the, you know, all of the other essays. Um, and they sort of had the, the effect of seeming like a spell or an incantation in a way. Um, but even more than that, I think of book structure for me um, in, in writing essay collections like this one, like my body is a book of rules in both of them. I see the essays 
functioning as um, having these looping uh, failure processes. Basically, like the, you know, every essay is an attempt to figure something out in some way using, you know, a specific angle, specific, um, you know, lines of inquiry to kind of try to get at the, the, the crux of the problem. And there has to be some kind of failure in order for the book to continue. Because if I figure it all out, I should just stop writing the book um, because what else, like the event is over. So always there has to be this like looping failure cycle cycle. And um, I thought that the epigraphs seemed to function as a way of bringing us back to that reset point, um, showing that I was in these loops. I was not making any progress in a lot of ways. I was still stuck, um, you know, like a resetting of the clock, just coming back to this epigraph again and then trying something else. Yeah. It had like, it had that effect on me as a reader. Uh, like it tripped me, you know, I wasn't ready for it. And then I was like, Oh wait. And then you sort of, you have these little footnotes where you're commenting on the process on the page. Uh So, you know, it's like, you're really talking directly to the reader, uh, kind of like letting them in on the joke or something. Uh, but I felt like those repetitions kind of accrued power as they, went on you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. it started to work on me in different ways and unexpected ways and i guess i just like i I was surprised that it worked it was one of those things where i was like ah she pulled it off like you know like i felt the same way (laughs) yeah it's it's not like it it's not like something i think like the average person in books would advise someone to do like yeah try that you know repeat the epigraphs on every essay or most of the essays and comment on them in footnotes like it just doesn't sound like something that would 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 uh, be easy to do execution wise, and yet it worked. You know, I was sure I was going to have to cut them at some point, but um, <laughs> I got to keep them and was really happy about that. Well, good for you. And so now you're in Ohio, and you're mm-hmm. teaching at Ohio State. Is that right? I am. Our semester just finished or is finishing. Um, I teach creative nonfiction. Had two amazing graduate classes this semester. And then uh, I think I'm going to try to really spend summer break resting. And um, I have another book that I have started work on that I am not pushing myself to work on at all, but I am desperate to work on the one essay in particular that I've been starting to do research for. Um, So, yeah, school's out for summer. Well, good for you. Congratulations on White Magic. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Uh, If you learn anything, I know you're out of the astrology game, but if you learn anything about I'm born on August 1st, if there's anything I need to know, (laughs) I'm open to suggestions as I try to navigate, you know, the remainder of my existence. Absolutely. Okay. There you go. That is Alyssa Washuda, and her new essay collection is called White Magic, available now from Tin House. You can find Alyssa on the internet at washuda.net. You can also read her tweets. Her handle on Twitter is at Alyssa Washuda. Once again, the essay collection is called White Magic. Go get your copy immediately. 
This program, The Other People Podcast, is offered freely. All episodes, more than 700 and counting, are available to you for free. The entire archive. Have at it. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this show, if you listen regularly, and if you have the means, support the show. You can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. There are various tiers, various levels of support. You can get stuff. You can get a t-shirt. You can get a coffee mug, a sticker, a tote bag, a book club subscription. I'll wish you happy birthday. I'll send you a postcard. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have something to say to me, you can do that by emailing me letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl. Letters at otherppl.com. <laughs> Send me a letter. This program has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. The app is free. It's a good app. Go get the app wherever you get apps. What else? You can get other people t-shirts if you want. There is merchandise available. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. If you want to rate and review this show, that's an easy way to help the cause. Just go over to Apple Podcasts or I think that's the best place to do it. Leave a review, rate the show, hopefully in a manner that is uh, friendly. I guess that's up to you, isn't it? Next week on the program, Courtney Zoffness is my guest. She's the author of a new collection of memoirs called Spilt Milk. Stay tuned.